On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks were frequent, a crude little life-saving station was built. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted crewmen kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for themselves, they went out day or night, tirelessly searching for any who might need help. Many lives were saved by their devoted efforts. After a while, the station became famous. Some of those who were saved, as well as others in the surrounding area, wanted to become part of the work. They gave time and money for its support. New boats were bought, additional crews were trained, and the station grew. Some of the members became unhappy that the building was so crude. They felt a larger, nicer place would be more appropriate as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with hospital beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Soon the station became a popular gathering place for its members to discuss the work and to visit with each other. They continued to remodel and decorate until the station more and more took on the look and character of a club. Fewer members were interested in going out on life-saving missions, so they hired professional crews to do the work on their behalf. The life-saving motif still prevailed on the club emblems and stationery, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club held its initiations. One day a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in many boatloads of cold, wet, hot-drowned people. They were dirty, bruised, and sick, and some had black and yellow skin. The beautiful new club was terribly messed up, and so the property committee immediately had a shower, uh, shower house built outside where the shipwrecked victims could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities altogether as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members instead on keeping life-saving as their primary purpose pointed out that, after all, they were still called a life-saving station. But those members were devoted or were voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own station down the coast somewhere. As the years went by, the new station gradually faced the same problems the other one had experienced. It too became a club, and its life-saving work became less and less a priority. The few members who remained dedicated to life-saving began another station. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that coast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. You know, that, that story is kind of a uh, sobering picture of the modern-day church and its concern for the lost, its involvement in evangelism. And it's really a kind of a history of the church um, as we know it. Um, you know, beloved, we never want this place to become a club. <laughs> um, we never want to be more concerned with... Uh, what the person looks like that's walking through those doors and whether they're going to dirty the seat or whatever um, versus being concerned with their soul. And um, it's really a, 
illustration of where our priorities should be, not only as a church, but as individuals. When you stop and you think about Jesus calling his disciples, and you can turn over to Matthew 4, as that's where we find ourselves this morning. Matthew 4, verse 18, you can read along with me as I read this for us. Matthew 4, verse 18, it says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Uh, one thing that we want to uh, make clear is that God is in the business of rescuing men and women and boys and girls from that torment, that sea of sin. And He's still in that kind of business today. And it's of great concern to God, and therefore it should be of great concern to us. Um, in Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus is looking over Jerusalem, and He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her? How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. See, God sent His Son to this earth preach, to die, to be raised from the dead for the very purpose of saving men and women from an eternity in hell. And this isn't just something that, you know, uh, one of the Godhead is, is familiar with or concerned with. Really, the whole Trinity is concerned, is caught up with the salvation of a human soul. In John 3.16, we know the verse, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, have eternal life. Verse 17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but what? That the world should be saved through Him. That's how much the Father cares for the lost soul, that He's willing to give up His one and only Son for our salvation. But not only that, the Son Himself is concerned. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son basically, Jesus Christ said, I came to seek and to save that which was what? Lost. That which was lost. He was concerned with those who are lost. The Holy Spirit in Titus 3.5 gives to those who believe the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Spirit. See, the whole Trinity is in the work of saving mankind from sin. And so evangelism is a great concern not only of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but it should also be a great concern for us. And we see it throughout the Bible. It doesn't just start at the New Testament after Jesus dies and all of a sudden God's concerned with salvation. All the way back to Genesis 3.15 in the Garden of Eden when He promised that one day sin would be destroyed and that the very, uh, Satan's very head would be bruised. In Genesis 12.3, his covenant with Abraham, you remember, he says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Exodus 19.6, there at the covenant of Sinai, God called Israel to be 
to me a people, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. God was always concerned with the salvation of His people. Even Moses in Exodus 32, 32 was so concerned, so desperate for the salvation of those rebellious people that he led. He said this, But now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me out of thy book which thou hast written. That's what Moses said. In other words, if you're not going to save them, don't save me either. It was a hard issue. In Proverbs 11.30, we know that it says that he who wins souls is wise. He who is willing to go out into the world who's lost and dying in their sin and share the good news of the gospel. That's a wise person. We're called to do that. And even in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 2, it says, as they studied at the apostles' feet, they shared with each other, they praised God, and it says they came to have favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. God is in the salvation business. Even when the great persecution of the church happened in Jerusalem there under Saul himself in Acts 8, verses 1 to 4, says, those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word. What if somebody busted in here this morning and said, you know what, either you uh, kind of renege on your commitment to Christ or basically we're going to blow your head off right here. And if you, if you leave, walk through that door, you're making a commitment never to preach Christ again. Could you do that? Would you do that? Where's your commitment with Jesus this morning? Are we concerned about the lost in the world in which we live? Or do we turn into kind of a country club mentality? Go to church, and another Bible study, another Bible study, another Bible study, learn all this stuff, taking in, taking in, sucking up, you know, getting bigger and bigger spiritually, but never giving out. Over in Romans chapter 1, after Saul was converted, he was so touched and had such a passion for God and for evangelism. In verses 14 to 16, he said this. He said, I'm under obligation. You know, that, that word is a strong word. When you're under obligation to something, that's a pretty strong word. It speaks of commitment. It speaks of a passion. He says, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. See, thus for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Wherever he had an audience, the Apostle Paul was willing to share the gospel. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because he understood that it was the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Do you understand that there's power in those words? That it's the gospel that converts the soul? It's not your slick little track. It's not the way that try to you, you reach out with friendship evangelism and all that stuff. All those things are good. I'm not, don't get me wrong. But if you're not sharing the gospel with people, basically, you're not interested in their salvation. And we've gone from kind of... One, one area that, that says, oh yeah, we want to be you know, concerned, we want to go out soul winning, we want to go out and, and share the gospel on a daily basis to, to a church, and I'm speaking of the church in general, not just our church, that's kind of lulled to sleep. And we've kind of forgotten that the people we meet and greet on a daily basis in the gas stations, in the supermarkets, in the hospitals, and everywhere, they're going to one of two places. They're going to heaven or they're going to hell. There's no 
purgatory. There's no place in between. There's no second door that goes to heaven. It's all through Christ or, or nothing. That's clearly what the Gospel says. But it's the Gospel, it's the good news that Jesus saves. That's the power of salvation. And I ask this this morning, myself included, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? Paul had an overwhelming desire to see people saved. He was, he was willing to do whatever it took. In 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul says that he was willing to become all things to all men, that he might by, means, by some means save some. What's that mean? Does that mean you compromise your Christian life and just go out and do what everybody... No, that's not talking about that. He's saying he's willing to put these petty little things aside in order to reach the lost. He's not going to get hung up on personal preferences or legalistic jargon. He's willing to reach out to those around him. John Knox pled with God, Give me Scotland or I die. Do we have that kind of passion? John Wesley considered the whole world his parish. He didn't put borders on it. He didn't put boundaries on it. It's interesting because like the Christian life in general, if we want to share the life-gifting message of the Gospel, in Matthew 16.25, Jesus said this, For whoever wishes to save his life shall what? Shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake he shall find it. In other words, in saving others, really we, we have to lose ourselves somewhere in that process. It's not about us. In losing ourselves, hopefully we'll win others to Christ. See, those who would reach the world with the Gospel message, life-giving message of Jesus Christ, you know what? You must be willing to be rejected. If you're not willing to be rejected, then don't even go there. Because you're going you're gonna to get rejected more than not. But we should also have a sense of victory in that. That we're not being rejected just because they don't like us. We're being rejected for the cause of Christ. We're rejected because of the Gospel we're sharing. That doesn't mean you go out and, and uh, act like a weirdo or something so people... You know, persecute you, and then you say, Oh, look, I'm being persecuted for Christ. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, if you're preaching the gospel, you're being authentic to the gospel message, the Bible says that people aren't going to like you. It's just not going to happen that way. They're not going to embrace you because the cross of Christ is a stumbling block for many. But just the idea that reaching out, God wants us to do that. And we see this here in. In, in chapter 4 when he calls the first disciples. You know, the, the word evangelize in different forms of that word is used over 50 times in the New Testament at different spots. But it's even in the Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. See, to make disciples is to evangelize. To bring men and women under the Saviorhood, under the, 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 the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. When Jesus called His disciples to Himself, He called them to salvation, but He also called them to go call others. It didn't stop there. 
And there was various calls throughout the New Testament for the disciples, different levels of their calling. But here we see in verse 18 that Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is approximately about 8 miles by 30 miles. 13 miles, I mean. 8 by 13 miles. And it's about 700 feet below sea level. And they basically, it was kind of like a lake. And yet, fishing was a, a regular thing over there. People always fished over there. It was good fishing. And so here we see who? Simon and Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting their net into the sea. Have you ever watched the uh, show, uh, that fishing show? What's it called? I can never remember it. Greatest Catch or Deadliest Catch. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's one way of fishing. Well, back then there was kind of three ways of fishing. You could take a hook and a line out and throw it in the water and catch something. Or you could go out on the end of the dock and throw a, or a boat and throw a, a net over and then kind of along the shore there and where it's shallow. Or you could actually go out and, and take a bigger net, a drag net, and pull it between two boats in the deep water and catch fish that way. Well, obviously, Peter and Andrew were using the second method here. It says they, they were casting their net. About probably 10, 9, 10 feet in diameter this net was. And they were fishermen. That's what they used it for. That's, they, they knew what they were doing. They were fishermen by trade. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus called fishermen? I mean, if you were going to start a whole religious movement, would you start with two fishermen? I don't know if I would. I'd look for somebody in marketing or some sales, something that had some you know, ability to... You know, these fishermen, what, what did they know about that? All they knew was catching and gutting fish. And yet, that's who Jesus called. He gathered together the first fish-catching crew. That was His church. They were His first partners in ministry. And He had the power and the right to accomplish this work through these guys. You know, Jesus could have done all this Himself. Do you know that? That when Jesus came to earth, He could have, he could have said, you know, I'm, I'm just going to win these people by myself and kind of you know, leave these, these human beings out of it because they're probably going to mess it up more than not. He could have done it that way, but He didn't. He included us in this process. He could have done it alone, but He never intended to do it alone. From the very beginning of His ministry, He always planned to call people to help Him, to call people alongside of Him. And the first call was to these fishermen. He says, follow Me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. I'll make you fishers of men. Do you know that Jesus and even God always chooses His partners? He always chooses who He's going to work with. Stop and think about it. He chose Noah. He chose Abraham. He chose Moses. He chose David. He chose the prophets. He chose Israel herself to be a whole nation of partners together with God. Jesus told His disciples in, in uh, John 15 that you didn't choose Me, but I chose you. And I appointed you. That you should go out and bear fruit. I remember in grade school being gym time, you know, you had rec time or whatever, you'd have to go out in the playground. And, and uh, I always hated this, you know, you'd pick sides, you'd pick teams. And usually there was usually a couple guys that were good jocks and really good sports people and everything. And, and so they would usually be the team captains, of course, you know. And so some of us who weren't as uh, 
well off athletically as they were. You know, we had to line up against the wall, and then these guys would start to pick. You know, in the worst possible scenario. I mean, you just dreaded it. You know, from the very beginning of this, oh, we're going to play kickball and we're going to pick sides. It's like, oh no! You just started thinking in your mind that you'd be lined up against the wall and you'd be the last boy, and there'd be girls there standing next to you. And somehow, this 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 athletic guy that was gifted athletic would think that this girl was better athlete than you were, and you'd still be standing there and you'd be the last person to be picked. It was fearful. Hated that. I was never the last one, but I was close sometimes, tell you. I think it was more out of spite than anything else. But God always chose who He was going to work with. But He always called ones who themselves are to be the callers. He called Christians to follow Him, but He also said, hey, you know what, while you're following Me, you should be calling out to others to follow Me. <laughs> you're not the end of the parade. Get some other people in line. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter wrote, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Why are we here today? Why doesn't God just save us and go, poof, you're in heaven? <laughs> Wouldn't that be easy? As soon as you come to Christ, you know, boom, you're gone. You just incinerate, boom, you're, you're in heaven. He left us here to do something. He left us here to preach the Gospel to those who have yet to hear. He's left, left us here to be fishers of men. Now Christ mandates here, these followers, that they were to be fishermen of men. And the command there in verse 19, He says, follow Me. It has the idea of, you know what, get in line, come over here. And really, it says, follow after me. The idea is that your place is, is following after me. You walk in my footsteps, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. That's what being a disciple of Christ is. In the, in the New Testament, when they were teaching a student how to write Greek or any other language for that matter, they would have a, look like a kind of a cookie sheet, one of the small little cookie sheets, and they'd fill it up with uh, clay. And the, the, uh, the teacher would take his stylus and he'd put the letter alpha in there, kind of an indentation. And he'd take the letter and he'd make a beta and all the way through the Greek alphabet. And then he would take the student's hand and he'd put the stylus in the student's hand. He said, now follow the impression there that I've made for you in that clay. And the student would make the A and he'd make the B and he'd do it until his muscle memory was such that he wouldn't need that template anymore. He just could write on a piece of paper A and it just, just did it. Well, that's what Christ did for us. He came to this earth and He left us a template. He left us footprints in the sand. We read the little palm footprints at Noni's funeral the other day. And that's so true that Christ left us a pattern to live our life after. And it conveys the idea that you're following someone who's, who's able to be followed. A disciple who's committed and who's willing to imitate the one he's following. That's what a disciple of Jesus Christ is. I saw this illustration and it's kind of interesting. Many years ago, there was this Italian kind of recluse. He just was pretty wealthy, but he just kept to himself. And uh, 
one day someone found him dead. And uh, he lived pretty frugal life all his life. But for whatever reasons, when his friends were going through all his stuff, they were sorting out all his stuff, he had few possessions that he accumulated over this time. But for some reason, this guy had a knack for collecting violins. And he had 246 expensive violins crammed into his attic. Some even more valuable. Yeah, the more valuable ones, they said they found in the bureau and under the bed and things like that. Virtually all this guy's money, all he did was he, he spent buying these violins and he just hoarded them in his house. And really... You know, this misdirected devotion to these violins that he just put in his house for no reason. Really, it robbed the, the world of all the beautiful sounds that could have been made with these violins. Because he so selfishly hoarded and treasured these violins, the world never heard the music that were meant to play on these violins. Someone even reported that the first violin, the great Stradivarius, the first one ever made was not played until it was 147 years old. You say, what's the point? The point is this. A lot of us Christians treat our faith like this man treated his violins. They hide them in the attic. They hide them in the drawer. They bury them away like they're a great treasure. They don't want to share the light of the gospel. They don't want to share the life-giving message that they've changed their life with anyone. So all those who have yet to hear are left in their spiritual poverty and their spiritual darkness. I don't like to quote statistics because you never know where they come from, but someone said this, 95% of all Christians have never led another person to Jesus Christ. 95%. See, true love of our riches in Christ leads us, it should lead us, to shine and to share the gospel message. Not to run and hoard it and keep it from people. So he called Peter and Andrew, and he also called James and John. It says they were in the boat with their, their father Zebedee and they were mending their nets, which was kind of a routine thing they did, as we talked about earlier. But one thing I noticed about their passion to follow Christ, it says there in verse 22, it says, He called them and what? And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed Him. They left everything that they knew to follow Christ. They left all that was comfortable to them to follow Christ. See, that's what it takes to follow Christ. That's the kind of passion, that's the kind of intensity it takes to follow Christ. You have to be willing, the Bible says, to give up everything. Or you can't be counted worthy to be called His disciple. We lose sight of that somewhere. You know, we think somehow that we can have one foot in the world, one foot in the church, and, you know, just kind of walk this balance beam and everything's fine. 
You know, we can come in here Sunday and, and, and praise the Lord and lift our hands up and then go out and, and live like the world and, and do things that are directly disobedient to God's world word the rest of the week. Because, you know what, we're living in an age of grace and, you know, God loves us anyway. And We need to wake up. We need to say, hey, wait a minute. Is my life within these walls matching my life outside these walls? Or am I being hypocritical in my faith? Has God truly transformed me into a disciple of Christ? You know, these disciples, they weren't perfect people by any means. They were selfish, they were proud, they were weak, they were cowardly. They didn't show a lot of uh, ability to be dependable. Like I said, these would be the last guys that I would pick if I was starting a religious organization. And yet Jesus chose them for His disciples. They were the raw material that he would make into useful instruments for his work. It's so important for us to hear that. You know, you don't need to take a bath to come to church. You don't need to cleaned up, get cleaned up to come to Jesus. That's not what it's about. And the, begin, the minute we begin to think that way, we got it all wrong. The song we sing once in a while, come just as you are. And that's so true. See, but some people look at that and go, well, that's not a good song because, you know, you're just saying that it doesn't matter. You know, your life can be... No, I'm not. If you come just as you are to Jesus and you admit yourself to be a sinner and say, God, save me, what's He going to do? Is He going to leave you just as you are? No. He's going to change you. He's going to form you and fashion you into His perfect image. He's going to knock off all the rough parts. And He's going to continue to do that until we go to be with Christ. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is kind of the priority that God puts on who He calls, who He uses. And if you're sitting here this morning and saying, well, you know, you just don't know my background or whatever. The guy we talked about a little earlier, the Apostle Paul, well, previous to his conversion, his name was Saul. And he used to go around and just for the fun of it, hunt down Christians and kill them. That was his job. And he thought that righteous, that, that religiously he was righteous in doing that. He was a Pharisee and just thought, hey, this is what I'm going to do to further my cause. And he would actually kill Christians. And yet God one day touched his heart and changed him entirely. So don't be sitting there this morning thinking, well, you don't know my history. God does. <laughs> God knows your history better than anybody. Better even probably than yourself. He created you. He loves you. He desires a relationship with you. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. He's reminding the Corinthian believers, and if you know anything about the church at Corinth, they were kind of a sad bunch of folks. I mean, they had all sorts of things going wrong. If you read through that book, I mean, I mean, they were, they were mocking the communion table. They were doing all sorts of bad things in that church. And he wants to kind of start off on a positive issue. And look at what he says in verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren. And then he says this, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. 
See, that's who the world would choose. The world, they start a new company. What do they look for? You look for wise people. You look for mighty people. You look for noble people. People with a name. People that are gone somewhere. Well, God doesn't operate that way, beloved. It says, but God has chosen, past tense, what? The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. See, God's saying, you don't have to do it that way. I don't do it that way. I pick something that nobody else would pick. I pick the last person that's up against the wall and is sweating bullets. Please, somebody, please pick me. Please. God picks that person. And He creates a team that blows everybody else out of the water. He says He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen who? The weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. He's chosen the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen. The things that are not, that He might nullify the things that are. That what? No man should what? Boast before God. I've heard people say once in a while when they're sharing their faith, gee, I, you know, I just wish that person would come to Christ. They're so gifted. They'd make a wonderful path. They'd make a wonderful musician. They'd make this and they go on and on and on about this person's talents and gifts. And I want to say, boy, you don't get it, do you? God's not interested in that. God didn't choose us to be His children based on who we are. You understand that? The Bible says He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. I don't know how old you are here today, but I guarantee you, you're not that old. <laughs> Talking the foundation of the world, the very beginning of time. God had you on His heart. He set His love upon you. And He said, you know what? It doesn't matter what kind of gifts or talents. It doesn't matter what you're going to look like. It doesn't matter anything about you. I choose you. You're going to be on my team. Because of His love for us. You notice there in our text, we see that Jesus just didn't command these disciples to become fishers of men, did He? He didn't say, follow me and you better be fishers of men. He didn't say that. What did He say? He said, He would what? Make them. I'll make you fishers for men's souls. Not only was He willing to make them into disciples, and, but He was also willing to, to make them into fishers for men. Ones who would go out and share the Gospel with those who have yet to believe. In John 15:5, Jesus said this, I'm the vine, you are the branches. In other words, let's get the priority right here. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me, who who's connected to the vine, and I'm connected to him, that's what he says, he's going to bear a lot of fruit. Very simple gardening pointer there. If you have a vine in your backyard and you want it to bear more fruit, you don't go out and just cut all the branches off the vine. I'm speaking from experience. My wife had a potato plant in the front of the house. These nice purple or blue flowers on it or whatever. And I don't know what it is, but once a year, it doesn't really matter what time of year, I get in, something inside me that says, you know what, it's time to prune. It's pruning time. 
And I don't consult a book. I don't go on the internet. And I just get this thing in my head and I got to cut. And so I go in the garage and I get my clippers and my saws and I go out and I look what needs to be cut. Well, this potato plant was pretty big. It was kind of obscuring the window. So I just started cutting. And it had little flowers on it. And they were pretty as they fell to the ground. And I filled up a whole green, one of those green things, you know, with all the things. And I, after I kind of shoved it in there and I looked, and you can still see some of the flowers in there. And I'm thinking, I'm in trouble. This is it. I'm, it's game over for me. I'm, and I'm looking at this poor plant. It's just a bunch of sticks. There's nothing left. There's no green on it at all. And if, if you're good in that area, I mean, it would bless my wife if you could come over somehow and heal that plant so that when she came back, it would have those purple flowers again because it's not happening with me. I don't know what, you know, it's just not happening. But you know what? If you're disconnected from the vine, those, those plants I put in the thing that I cut off the tree, they died. Those flowers withered. We can't do anything apart from Christ. And that's what he says. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Zero. Not a zip. Well, what do you mean? You know, I can, I, you know, I can, I have gifts. I, no, you don't. Everything you have was given to you by God himself. See, somehow we like to separate that. We think that, well, we're good at our job, so when we go to work, we separate that from our spirituality. And I have, you know, the ability to do this or that or whatever. Do you know what? God has given you that ability. God has given you the ability to to play music or to, to edit video or to, to clean houses or to do whatever you do, put on roofs. God's given you the ability. He made you that way so that you could understand that process so that when that business came to you, you could function there. It's not just because of who you are. The Bible says, apart from you, me, Christ is saying, you can do nothing. Just in closing, there's a couple good things that make a, a fisherman make an evangelist. John MacArthur in his commentary had these here listed and I thought this would be good to share. First of all, a fisherman needs to be patient. Someone who's going to go out and share the gospel of Christ, you need to be patient. Sometimes we get impatient, don't we? We want people to come to Christ now, so we go and we just blast them with everything we know. And then we walk away and we wonder why the next time we go to visit them, you know, they're in the house locking the doors and closing the curtains and, you know, we're not home. You have to be patient. It takes time to fish. You don't just go up and, you know, it, it takes time. There's patience in fishing. Fisherman has to learn to wait. Secondly, a fisherman or evangelist, you have to have perseverance. It's not simply a matter of, of waiting patiently in one place, hoping some fish will eventually show up. It's a matter of, of, of going from place to play, place. Like when first day of fishing, you put your... Worm in that, that fishing hole, nothing bit. Well, you moved down the stream or you moved up the stream. You didn't just stand there the whole day if they weren't biting. Sometimes you go back to the same hole. Maybe there's a fish there that wasn't there before, whatever. But there's perseverance involved. Thirdly, an evangelist or a fisherman must have a good instinct for going to the right place and dropping their net at the right moment. I worked with a, a chaplain one time and went out to this call and, you know, he was one of these evangelist guys. That's all he talked about was evangelism, which is good. But we went and we talked about, we, we had to meet with this family who just lost a loved one in an automobile accident. We're sitting there consoling the wife. You know, that wasn't 
really the right time to start in with the Romans road, okay? It just wasn't the right time. And after I kicked him under the table a couple times, he realized what he was doing. You have to pick the right time. You have to persevere. You have to have courage. You know, you watch that, that fishing show on TV. I mean, those guys got courage. I remember in college, I thought, boy, you need to go to Alaska and make all this money and be a fisherman. Now I watch that show. It's like I wouldn't last, you know, two days on that boat. I would have, you know, puked everything out inside me, out under the water. I'd be dead. You know, it's just an incredible profession that those guys do. But they have courage. It takes courage to go out and share the gospel with those around us who have yet to hear it. Why? Why does it take courage? I'll tell you why. Because there's fear of rejection. There's probably people in this room who have loved ones who are, are near and dear to them, and yet they've never clearly shared the gospel with them. And the reason is because they're fearful. Fearful they won't like them anymore. Fearful they'll reject them. You need to get over that. Ask God for courage to do that. Also, good fishermen or good evangelists, I like this, keeps himself out of sight as much as possible. What do I mean by that? You know, a lot of times when we're involved in sharing the gospel with others, it seems like we get in the way of what God's trying to do. And we have our little agenda and we have a little program that we've learned and we just get out there and we just kind of run through the program. And we're not waiting on the Spirit. We're not asking God, do you want me to go to this next page of this document? Or what do you want me to do with this track? Or do you want me to just leave it with Him? Do you want me to go through the whole thing? But we just in our minds have this, we've got to close the deal. A good soul winner always keeps himself out of the picture as much as possible. And when Jesus called His disciples to commit themselves to evangelism, He committed to train them. He committed to empower them. The Bible says that we've been given the Holy Spirit of God inside us. That's the power we need to go out in, not in our own logic, not in our own ability. Jesus kind of laid this example down for us. And, you know, you can take this for what it's worth, but one thing Jesus was was that He was available to people. He was available to people. It seems incredible to me that the Son of God... He was going to be off the scene here in a couple years. He was going to be dead and gone and be with his father. He had this whole thing to organize, and yet he still had time for people. He just didn't take his disciples and lock everybody away and say, hey, you know what? No, I've got to train these guys because this is all there is. Can you believe it? These, these crazy fishermen, they're the ones that are going to take over for me. So I've got to spend every waking ounce of time into them because you know the time's coming when I'll be no longer here. No, he didn't do that. As a matter of fact, even sometimes his disciples wanted him to do that. Hey, we don't have time to deal with these children. We don't have time to feed these people, whatever. Let's just go. No, and Jesus said, no, no, no. We've got to spend time with people. We've got to be available to people. He never turned down a request for help. He just didn't. He always was willing to go where the need was. Secondly, he showed no favoritism. He always dealt with whether it was the poor or the outcast. They could approach him just as easily as the wealthy and the powerful. He didn't just deal with certain people. He had no, no favoritism at all. Thirdly, Jesus was totally sensitive to the needs of those around him. He always recognized an open heart. He was always willing to, to reach out to a repentant sinner. Even when the crowd pressed around him and he noticed what? That woman touched his garment. What kind of sensitivity is that? 
When we are sensitive to Christ and His Spirit, you know what? He'll make us sensitive to others. He'll lead us to them or them to us. And some of, to some of us, sensitivity doesn't come easy. It doesn't come naturally. But you know what? That's, we need to be even more dependent on the Spirit. Fourthly, Jesus usually kind of secured a public profession or testimony. He used testimonies of people a lot of times to, to, to witness on His behalf. He gave them specific instruction. Fifthly, Jesus showed love and tenderness to those He sought to win. He didn't show judgment or hypocritical attitude at all. And finally, He always took the time. Jesus always had time for others. See, some Christian workers were so busy with, quote, the Lord's work, that we don't have any time for anybody else. We don't have time to minister to people. We're doing the Lord's work. We're caught up in, in ministry. That's not Christ-like. We should always make time for other people. In the response of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, when Jesus issued the call, it says that they immediately left everything they knew and they followed Him. That's what Christ calls us to do. He calls us to be obedient. Obedient to the call of the Gospel. How do you do that? You, you know, If you want a passion for lost souls, just be obedient to what God has told you to do. That, that passion will come. But the first step is obedience. Some of us may know the hymn, Let the Lower Lights Be Burning. Kind of a pretty well-known hymn. It's based on a story told by D.L. Moody. And here's the story. A ship was coming into Cleveland Harbor on Lake Erie on a stormy night. And the harbor had basically two sets of lights to guide the incoming vessel. One set was high on this bluff above the harbor and could be seen from many miles out. The other set was down near the coastline and it was used to guide the ships through the rocks as they came nearer into port. And D.L. Moody says, well, on one particular night, the wind and the rain had extinguished these lower lights. And the pilot suggested that they stay out in the lake until daylight. The captain, however, was afraid of the ship being destroyed by the storm and decided to risk making the harbor. But without the lower lights to guide him in, the ship was wrecked on the rocks. And most of the crew and the men on board died. And when he was applying this story to the Christian idea of witnessing, he said this, The upper lights in heaven are burning as brightly as ever they've ever burned. But what about the lower lights? How are we doing down here? Is our light for Christ shining as bright as it should? I pray it is. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, I pray that we would understand that You left us here for a purpose. You left us here to share the life-changing, forgiving message of the Gospel with those who've yet to hear. God, it's, it's not about joining a church. It's not about wearing certain clothes or acting a certain way. It's about acknowledging your need for a Savior before a holy God. Lord, there's not one person in this room who's not sinned in some way. We've all fallen short of Your glory, the Bible says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's very clear. There's no goodness within us. 
your word says. But Father, we know that that your word declares us to be on our way to an eternal hell without the forgiveness that Christ offers. And so, Lord, we pray that even now, if there's someone here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in you, that they would cry out to you, be, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, save me. Transform my life. Show me the way of salvation. Reveal yourself to me in a way that I know it will be you through your word. Lord, we ask that you would do that even now. And for the rest of us, Lord, who know you, I pray that you would encourage us to share the gospel with those who've yet to hear. Lord, that we wouldn't just pass them by, that somehow, creatively, we could reach out to them, get to know them, and share that message that changed our lives. And Father, we, we thank you for our mothers, and we pray that today as we spend time, hopefully with family and friends, Lord, that you would bless that time, that we would never forget the gift that they are to us. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.